Hey, this is It's Mental Podcast. Today we have a special guest, um, Sarah Tolamash. She is a professional stand-up comedian based in New York. Uh, I got to know her uh, when she was uh, traveling in Berlin uh, last winter. Uh, actually, not last winter, before Christmas, right? It was Yeah, right before Christmas. Yeah, right before Christmas uh, and with her husband, Jolis, and uh, they did a comedy show in Berlin. It was packed. I think the the every comedian in Berlin was uh, in that show, and it was <laughs> such a blast. <laughs> and uh, Sarah was talking about uh, her depression uh, and uh, her husband's OCD on stage. So I thought, okay, maybe we can do an episode. Uh, and uh, it's happening now. I'm very happy. So um, Sarah, I hand over to you. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I am a stand-up comic. I reside in New York City, and that's where I, um, I've been living for the past 12 years. Um, I'm actually from Houston, Texas, and I started there and uh, moved up here 12 years ago to pursue it uh, full-time. Um, and that's what I've been doing. Wow. So uh, as a comedian, uh, my, my, uh, I'm really interested. So 12 years ago, uh, what make you decide, okay, I, I, I want to do stand-up full-timely, and uh, was it a big jump for you? Um, well, I, see, I grew up with my parents, real, like, they loved stand-up comedy, and uh, also right when the time when I started forming probably memories, mm -hmm. uh, HBO was a thing, uh, a, it's, yeah. I guess a streaming service, but like it's a broadcast and they play, they started doing a lot of um, stand-up specials and we'd always watch those. And I always just enjoyed the format. So it was always something that I really liked to do. And then um, I think I started writing stand-up or try to write jokes when I was a senior in high school. And then it wasn't until I was like 20 that I saw kind of an open call audition for a comedy fest. And then I realized everybody there seemed very polished. And I then from there, I understood that you had to, there's open mics that you go to in your city and that's how you got better and meet other comics. So I started in Houston like that. And I did that for close to 10 years wow. in my early twenties to my 30 to 30 in Houston. And then 30 till now is, uh, I've been in New York doing it, but I was like you, uh, I, I don't think you mentioned that on the actual recording of this podcast, but like I got broken up with by a guy and I remember just being like tired of living my life kind of for somebody else. And I, it was kind of the catalyst to live my life on my own terms and I always wanted to do stand up and then that's when I saw the open casting call so then I I kind of took advantage so it was kind of from a a breakup point of view to just like you know do something for myself rather than because at the time I was just driving down every weekend to see this guy and then he completely ghosted me and as <laughs> I thought we were boyfriend but apparently not <laughs> me, me too uh, I did the, uh, I I told you before the recording so um, I also started uh, to do comedy because in 2018, um, I, I was heartbroken uh, by a guy I love, uh, my boyfriend. 
uh, and uh, then I realized we are we are not even seeing each other. We are just <laughs> having sex on a regular basis for six months, and I'm yeah. like, okay, you are my man, and I love you. And how can you? How dare you treat me like this? So I was really depressed, and I was suicidal. And I thought, oh, uh, I went to see therapist, and I thought. Uh, she asked me why I'm depressed. I said, because I cannot, uh, the, this guy is, uh, is not nice to me. And uh, she, uh, he, he, he doesn't want to be with me. And then the more I went through therapies, I realized, oh, he's not my boyfriend and we are not seeing each other. I realized, okay, my life was falling apart and this is just a symptom. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like as soon as you kind of start working on yourself, things get better. And then you realize like when someone's not into you, it's actually, it's not their problem. You know what I mean? Where you're yeah. like, oh, I should have accepted that. I can't force someone to like me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just like kind of working on that. That was the same kind of reason why I moved to New York in my 30. I was in a long-term relationship in Houston thinking that we were kind of getting engaged. And then I said before I got married, because I felt like getting married in Houston probably would have squashed my dreams to actually pursue stand up that I was like, can I try it in New York? And then that ended poorly. But it was the feeling of like, I just have to do this for myself. And then it all kind of worked out because then I ended up meeting Joe, my husband now, who's in standup and it's in the city that I'm supposed to be in for the career that I wanted. Um, and then a guy that just totally got and likes me for me. And it's yeah. like, he wants to be with me. So that was, it all worked out in that way. But I, I do feel like as soon as you start kind of working on yourself and not worried about like meeting a guy or the perfect yeah. partner, it kind of weirdly works out for itself. I think. Yeah, I, this is so strange. I, I feel exactly, I feel the same. Uh, you, you know, like when I was with this guy, um, I said, why you, are, you don't want to be with me? He said, because I don't love me. I was like, what do you mean you don't love me? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was out of the space. I, I couldn't accept the reality. And I'm like, yeah, but we, we are together so much. We have so much fun and we, we are, uh, we see each other three times per week. Uh, what do you mean you don't love me? And I, I went really, really crazy. And then thinking back, I'm like, oh, yeah. Especially when I met the right guy, I feel, yeah. wow, that, that's how it feels like. But also it's not about the right guy. It's also because I'm in the right mental space. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, I mean, everyone's like, oh, my soulmate, but I don't really feel like it's that way. It's more about you. Yeah. And, the, and, the, you know, actually, I, <laughs> I, I don't listen to Jolie's podcast, but I have a friend. He listened to Jolie's podcast the other day we were talking. So this friend, he is a little bit struggling with his uh, um, romantic life. And uh, he, he said, oh, when he listened to Jolie's podcast, Jolie's uh, described his relationship with you. Um, Jolie said, oh, sometimes he can just lie in the bed with you for hours and uh, uh, talking about everything. And uh, then he realized, oh, there's no one in this world uh, understand him like you do. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's how Jolie's describe your relationship. And this friend told me, he said, he realized in the past uh, five years, he never reached to a point to feel similar, this kind of feeling to anyone. And uh, when Jolie's describe it, he's like, oh, that's what I'm looking for. And that's what a good relationship should feel like. And when he told me this, I'm like, wow, interesting. Because, um, <laughs> <laughs> because that's how I feel with my current relationship. And uh, uh, I, I got dumped a while ago. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I meet uh, my current boyfriend, who is also a stand-up comedian. We were friends before we, we start dating. And uh, everything just went so weird. And uh, this guy told me he loves me like just a few weeks after we start dating. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I traveled back, my mind traveled back like uh, four years ago. I was begging this guy. I'm like, how, what do you mean you don't love me? Why you don't want to be with me? Then I realized, okay, you, the re- rejection to me is really about like I'm not in the right mental space and I'm not meeting the right person. It's not about, I don't deserve love. Yeah. And also, you know, it's weird there. It sounds so cheesy, but there is kind of empowerment to be just accept that like someone's not into you. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. It's just like, y'all, you are not compatible with each other. Like it's not yeah. what that person's looking for and you can't really. And then when you're with somebody like that, like it closes you off to be with somebody that you could be compatible with. Mm-hmm. So and there the- is like liberty that eventually, you know, I just don't like it when I get, I get strung along where they've made me feel like they are in a relationship with me or that they do like me, which that has happened. But I've also just ignored all the red flags that they clearly weren't that into me because I wanted something so bad from them. Yeah, yeah. I I think like uh, uh sometimes uh when we say okay this guy is an asshole like uh, he he did this that to me and he lied to me, but when I look back, uh, after some time I realize okay, um did he lie? Yes, but did he do a good job? No, but why? No. <laughs> why I believe it because I wanted to believe it. Yeah. It's hard. I know. Cause I remember talking about this recently, like the previous guy years ago, I remember being like, uh, I, I thought I wanted him to get, or us to get married. And he obviously kept being like, I don't believe in marriage, which my therapist at the time was like, that's not true. Like all these guys always say that. And then as soon as they break up with you, they'll, they'll marry someone right away or something ridiculous like that. So it just means they don't want to get married to you. And it was nice to like, hear that from like a therapist to kind of set you into reality but also at the same time I'm like oh why won't he marry me but then I'm also at that time like I was a raging alcoholic you know like (laughs) (laughs) so I wasn't of course like of course I shouldn't have gotten married that would have been horrible for me to have gotten married and I mean he probably was rightfully so to not want to marry me so now having that time to reflect back and see my accountability in the situation, you know, it just seems ridiculous now. Sarah, it's so funny. Like our relationship pattern is so similar. Because yeah. My previous boyfriend, we are together for three and a half years. 
and uh, we we move in. We uh, we have a life together. Um, uh, like uh, we we were very integrated with each other family. But he says he doesn't believe in marriage. Uh, he, he his dad and mom uh, uh, divorced in a very badly manner, and he doesn't believe in marriage. Uh, and my mom says he. He probably will marry someone else. It's just not with you. I'm like, no, you don't understand. We are in very good relationship. It's really about his beliefs. Like, don't say things like this. And I got so mad. And uh, and you eventually I even decided, mm, I, marriage is, not, I'm fine. I can do without marriage because yeah. I'm so committed with this guy. And then yeah, you're like ignoring <laughs> yeah. what you want for yourself. Yeah, because yeah. they're just spewing. <laughs> There, I don't know. I don't want to call it bullshit because I'm sure there are some people that just don't believe in marriage, but then they should be with a partner that also, I would do the same thing. Like, I'd be like, oh, I guess I don't need marriage. But at the same time, you're like, but why won't you marry me if we're living together and kind of living like this? Like, it doesn't yeah. make sense to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've seen that with guys too, being like, I don't want any kids. And then they get, they, <laughs> they all get kids. So it's like when you hear somebody say that to you sometimes I just like if that's what you want and they're saying that it just means you really do have to take it as they don't want kids or they don't want to get married to you because that's what they're saying yeah I I think they are not really necessarily lying to you maybe they don't even know it yet like for example like my ex-boyfriend uh we were three and a half a year together and one day he he came home he said um he wants a breakup because uh, he realized he have commitment issue. I'm like, wow, that's perfect time to have commitment issue. I've commit with each other three and a half a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he moved out. Um, after a month or so, we talked again. He um, during this relationship, he has such commitment issue that he refused to buy bed. He refused to buy furniture. He cannot commit to anything long term. And I feel like he he's, I was like, you need to see a therapist. You need to see a therapist. And then after the breakup, he moved to a new place. He's like, oh, I had an epiphany. I realized I want to have a nice place. I want to buy furniture. I want to buy bed. I want to make everything nice. And then he said, I realized I, uh, he didn't want to settle down. He didn't want to invest on everything. It's because he didn't want to really have a life with me. He really, yeah. Because, yeah. It's, I mean, it feels harsh, but you're like, you know, why would, why would you just want to be in a relationship with, with, a, some, with somebody that's just like, obviously doesn't want to be in a relationship with you? Yeah, I, I think it's a learning curve. I think it's a learning curve, like, on one hand, this guy, he needs to learn, okay, next time when he doesn't want to buy furniture, probably it means he doesn't want to be with this girl. But as a girl like myself, I also learned that, okay, um, in, in the future, um, this is a red flag and I'm not yes. going to engage. <laughs> I, know. With it. I know it's so annoying how much life is trial and error. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you wish you just knew all that stuff so you didn't waste your time? But it, I mean, all of this is just like learning um, perspective. Like, I don't really feel like until my thirties, that's when I kind of realized what I wanted for myself and what I wouldn't tolerate anymore. And 
I felt like that was really beneficial for me. And it, it did take a while, but it took all those other relationships to learn, you know, the same way. Like I had the same thing. There was a guy that I was going to move to LA with years ago and we're still really, really good friends. And he's, he's married, but he was in the moving. We were like the place to get the moving company and I'm bawling my eyes out. And it was because I didn't want to, I was having so much fun in Houston. I didn't want to move to LA and I just ignored my feelings. I should have ended the relationship there because we broke up a year later, but I knew then, but it's not that those are those things like later on in life or when you get a little bit older, when you're not doing something, it means you don't want to do it. And you're just, I think we kind of ignore our feelings because we think we're maybe being irrational or something mm -hmm. or nervous or anxious, but you're like, no, I just don't, I don't want to do it. I think like we need to learn more about our gut feelings that to listen to, okay, if I don't want to do something, uh, no matter if it's a right feeling or wrong feeling, but I think uh, to, for our happiness, like uh, we, we enjoy to not do things we don't want to do. So not doing yeah. it is, is the right thing. Yeah, I remember uh, the first year of sobriety, um, I work a 12 step program and, uh, they're, you know, they say they don't, don't date. And I totally agree with that within the first year. Cause you're just trying to get, get like your bearings, but I stopped dating guys that kind of gave me that like nervous feeling. And then I was like, I'm only going to date nice guys or guys that are into me. But then I, that was another thing I ignored. I, so I would date a guy that he was into me and then I wasn't into them. And I was just ignoring my feelings about that. So it goes like, it's, it's both ways too, where you're just like, Oh, I'm just ignoring how I feel about the situation. Yeah. And then it took after that one to be like, okay, I actually have to like the guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you talk about uh, uh, alcoholism issues. Um, may I ask, when do you realize you have uh, alcoholic issues? Um, well, I remember I, there, I guess in my early twenties and within like the first year of drinking, kind of like you're, I started kind of drinking my senior year and I started realizing nobody else was doing what I was doing. Like I was, you know, throwing up at, at parties. Uh, nobody else was really doing that. I mean, at a certain age, maybe like, but then they all kind of like grew out. And then in my early twenties, I started realizing like all of my friends were like, lives were moving on. And mine was just kind of stuck. And I was so depressed. I was hung over all the time. And I would try to like go a few days without drinking and I could do it or a week. And then by the time the weekend hit, I would just I guess go on benders, um, you know, just drinking for several days, straight partying. And I just realized it seemed like I couldn't stop. It was always on my mind when I did stop. Then I was thinking of when I could probably start having drinks again. And it was an obsession. And it there's that adage of your, you just get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. And I did that for 10 years. Cause you keep her like, maybe I'll drink wine. Maybe that's, you know, I'll just do wine or I'll just smoke weed. And then it always just like, 
it would go in a cycle where I'd be really good. And then two months later, I'd be back to where I started from. And then I also realized the people I was hanging out with were also just like alcoholics and drug addicts. And, um, the, the guys I were date would also be alcoholics. Cause that meant that they weren't calling me out on my stuff because, you know, we're both bad. Um, and we both could drink the way that we wanted to drink. Uh, so it was just like realizing the quality of my life was just not where I wanted to be. It was so small, like, you know, just like drink all night, be so hungover in the morning, kind of cancel obligations. And it would just be like this small tunnel vision of a life. And, um, I just, one day, um, I had, I guess several bottoms. I had kind of two sexual assaults, not serious, but enough to be like, I realized I was also just putting myself in bad situations. Like, um, and realizing I have a pattern. And so that's, it was moments like that. Uh, so set like several bottoms is what they call it, uh, of being like, I, this is all because of drinking mm -hmm. all of this, all of everything that's bad in my life is because of drinking. Mm -hmm. And so I just made the conscious decision to stop, but then it was hard. And that's how I got involved in like a 12 step program. Cause you are going with it with other people. And it, I think a big part of drug addiction and alcoholism and that there are studies coming out. A lot of it is just about like isolation. Mm -hmm. It's a weird disease. Cause it's, yeah. I, I, people think it's like genetic, but I actually don't think it is completely genetic. I think people that if they don't, they don't have it in their family, you can have it like be okay. And then in your thirties, all of a sudden, like you're just codependent on alcohol and drugs. Um, mm -hmm. but I feel like, you know, when, you know, yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh during the 10 years, like, uh, uh, were you thinking, oh, maybe I'm alcoholic, uh, or is all kicking at once? Um, I had one, it was like a sexual assault. I went out drinking with the, who I thought was a friend. I let them crash on my, I lived in a studio. I knew them. I thought it was okay for them to crash on my couch. And they tried to attempt doing something and the shame. I had to, for, I had to like kick them out of my apartment. And the shame that I felt from that was so like the next day was so suicidal and embarrassing. And Fortunately, at the time I was going to therapy and I had talked about this with my therapist and it, I told her all like the drinking. And that's when I kind of came out saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you totally are. <laughs> and it, it wasn't 10, it was until 10 years later mm -hmm. when I fully stopped, but it was, that was like when I was 21 or 22, when that happened. So I hadn't been drink like my drinking career probably was like at three years in, but it was bad. Um, so I had inclinations and I, it runs in, I, my grandfather was inflicted with it and, uh, like committed suicide ultimately because of it. Um, so I, it was, I was aware that that was a thing in our family. <laughs> and, and doing this, like, uh, 10 years, like, uh after you realize that you you have alcohol issue here you start to do the 12 step program how's your life like were you able to uh, managing a uh, functioning life 
uh, were you trying on and off with uh, with uh, alcohol? Um, yeah, like as soon when I did 12 step program, it's weird because you kind of feel like once you quit drinking or doing drugs and alcohol or the thing that you think is your problem in your life, you think that your life is going to like, I guess they call it pink cloud or like cash and prizes. Like you're all of a sudden, you're just going to be really successful. You're going to find the man of your dreams. You're going to get promoted to the job that you wanted, but you don't. And I always tell that with people that are newly getting sober, like, don't think your life, it's going to get better, but in a way that you're not going to realize. And it took me probably about a year in, there was a day where I managed to like run errands for my mom, go meet a friend, go do shows. And it wasn't until like at the end of the day, when I reflected back, I was like, Oh, wow. I managed to do a lot, like a million little things and nothing was annoying or over like a burden for me. And I remember being like, feeling really good about it, that I could just be there and do the, the mundane mm -hmm. and really kind of enjoy it and accept it. And I was like, oh, this, I think this is what they're talking about in sobriety mm -hmm. is like your life opens up. And that's how it, I felt like it opened up for me. And I, I stopped canceling plans. I focused more on like my career because when you quit drinking or doing drugs, I think about eight hours of your life opens up every day, every day, well, every day. Cause yeah. you know, you're like, I'm going to bars. That's that's four hours, five hours. I'm hanging out. Um, I'm sleeping in, or I'm going out to eat, you know, like late night eating. Cause I'm hungry from drinking. It's just like, there's so much time wasted with drugs and alcohol that you do. You have so much time during the day now. So you inadvertently start working on your life. Yeah. That sounds so cool. Like to, uh, have uh, more time and energy to do things. I, I check your, uh, YouTube videos. Uh, I, I found like a, Unable to do errands is a recurring theme in your in your material. Um, yeah. Do Do you still feel uh, hard to get things done? Yeah, I always joke that it's like everybody else got a handbook for life, and I didn't. Mm -hmm. I don't know why things are feel difficult for me. Like sometimes when I would have to work a day job the idea of working in an office was so anxiety inducing for me, like answering a telephone. I, I, somebody's asking something of me. I don't know if I can deliver that. I don't believe in myself in that way. Like those are the things that are very difficult for me. Also, I always, I'm learning to get better at this, but if accepting life of like, yeah. Life is just running errands. It's not mm -hmm. cool moments. You rarely have cool moments. So you might as well accept that you have to run errands and do the bullshit mm -hmm. and try to find fun in it. And I think that's why I enjoy maybe probably writing jokes about that, like the mundane mm -hmm. stuff of life. Or like, I find it comical where you're like, I can't believe we're on this planet, the probability of life. And then I have to go deposit a check. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I used to also have a lot of issue of running errands. I think um, now I got much better. Uh, I don't know about you, but for my reason, I realized uh, 
I have ADD. Um, I think I do too, but then I'm like, doesn't doesn't that feel like everybody probably does? <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, and uh, and I read uh, a few books about ADD, and uh, I realized, okay, my life is um, it's like a, when I'm unable to do things, then I feel I'm a piece of shit, and then my life is falling apart, and I hate yes. myself. Then I lie in bed, and I want to kill myself. Then I cannot get get out of the bed. Uh, and the, the, it's a down, downward spiral. Yes, very relatable. I, <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. Like, you just feel like a big piece of shit when you can't get shit done. And I do agree. Like, I do think ADHD is a, a, a thing that I'm inflicted on. I've never been like diagnosed, but like when you see the symptoms, you're like all of that. Somebody said something about like, we don't like to read instructions. We'd rather just do like the trial and error. Cause it just like feels better to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I, I, I learned quite a few tricks uh, from the books I read uh, later. I can write to you the, the names of books. Um, oh, definitely. I'm always like, yeah. Cause it is a huge problem. Like time management is a huge problem for me. Like uh, like before, and I didn't even have time to eat. <laughs> I took a phone call early and I was like, maybe I can fit in a run. And then I got home and then I had to get ready that you're like, I, I have, I did have all the time, but I decided to watch TikTok videos for about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. That could have been the time I could have eaten. Yeah. I, I heard you talk with the Irish fair that you, you play like a, your phone eight hours per day. Yeah. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it sucks because like, Nowadays for our, what we do for stand-up, you kind of have to self-promote and put videos up all the time. And so, and then this is my other problem that I deal with and I'm trying to learn to separate is that I, I think I get a dopamine rush for getting external validation. I don't know what psychology is. If something, I don't know, of course my therapist would be like, it's from your childhood. You didn't get the love that you needed. And I'm like, I know, but it's like, who what parent can be that? I had a pretty decent, um, what parent, and it's like, what do they need to do in order for me not to have external validation uh-huh. from like social media? Uh-huh. But yeah, like I'll post a video and then I'm just refreshing all day. Or I do really enjoy TikTok. I feel like I learn stuff <laughs> and not learn stuff. I, I, I really recommend the, this. Uh, uh, there's a, also, I really, really like his name is Johan Hari. Uh, he wrote three books, uh, all related to mental health. So the first book is about uh, um, substance and uh, addiction, uh, and also the whole history of uh, war on drugs and the politics uh, and the science involved. Um, the second book is called uh, Lost Connections. It's a book about anxiety and depression. It helped me so much. Like uh, it also in, um, inspired me to uh, start the Berlin Mental Health Festival. Yeah. And the the third book I think you you have to read it. It's uh, it's called a uh, Stolen Focus. It's a book about uh, like a uh, distraction and unable to focus. And he talked about why you are not able to focus. There are lots of reasons: nutritional, societal, political, and commercially, and everything. And uh, now I learned from the, this book, I got this uh, um, device you can get it on Amazon um, okay. called a kitchen safe. So it's a, it's a box. Uh, basically, once you set the timer uh, and lock it, there's no way you can open it. Uh, I, 
I love that because I the, I have been working on like uh, when I need to work on a project or edit video, I'll I'll leave my phone upstairs. I I look so I don't phone. look at it. Yeah, and uh, and uh, he also recommend an app called Freedom app. So every time when I need to focus, for example, um, last week, uh, or two weeks ago, I was I was preparing for my solo show. Yeah. Then I found myself distracting myself in insane ways, like really insane ways. Uh, and then at one point, I'm like, I cannot do this anymore. So I downloaded this app uh, called the Freedom app uh, on my laptop. It can block access to all all websites uh, that uh, is uh, are distract. Uh, can distract me yeah and after i click on that i realize i cannot go facebook uh, i cannot write emails anymore i cannot watch youtube video and then i was like okay let me see how can i hack this app yeah <laughs> so, so i found out if if i i log out uh or down uh how do you say delete the app i can see facebook again and yeah yeah I, and then I got so frustrated. I even called their customer service. I'm like, what kind of app you are making if I can just log out? Like, it's, it's useless. <laughs> and they told me, actually, there's a setting. Uh, like, if I set it, then once I start to block the website, I can log, not log out of the, the app and I cannot delete the app. And I also, it prevented me to go to the the back side of the computer to uh, from the uh, to to how do you say delete it uh, use coding nothing mm. I can do and uh, once I set it like that then uh, for 24 hours or whatever hours I want I, I cannot contact anyone uh, I cannot uh, uh, browse on, on website and then, yeah. then I found out okay I cannot use whatsapp web but I found out I still can use iMessage. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know anyone on iMessage. So I just start to check the, the, the conversation I had for ages ago. And I start to type to people I haven't contacted for years. I'm like, this is Yeah, really. It's so, I know. It's almost like, I think I'm going to just start with a box first before mm -hmm. I do the freedom mm -hmm. app. But yeah, you're... You're, it's so insane. Now you spent all this time trying to hack the app while you're supposed to be working on your your yeah, project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's really hard to battle the brain. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. But they, they would say that you can trick it or like, you know, there's certain things that I believe in. Like, sometimes I think I look into a, like a negative mindset. And then when you see that, that's all you, when you think that that's what you see, and so trying to program your mind into a positive mindset is really hard when you're so used to being like in a negative loop, I think. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's insane. I, I suffer a lot from distractions. I'm worried about procrastinating. <laughs> but uh, now I have um, now I have two of those books. One is to lock my devices uh, and uh, one is to lock my drugs. Uh, and then I also have the freedom app. So when I really need to concentrate, I, I would uh, like disconnect with anything. Like I cannot contact anyone. I cannot watch any uh, YouTube videos or go on Facebook or send a message or send an email. And I'm just, yeah, then in that case, I still can find some way to distract myself. For example, clean my house. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I haven't <laughs> cleaned my 
toil it for like two months and I'm like, oh, it's perfect time to deep clean everything. Uh, oh yeah, I start filing. I do everything, like things you would never want to do on a day off, but it's just like, I just don't want to deal with the one thing that I have to get done today. Wow, Sarah, I feel like we have so many similar symptoms. Yeah, we do. <laughs> no, it's really, it's, it's really bad. Um, but then I've accepted that like, you know what? Maybe procrastination is the way that I do it. it. Or like the last minute, I have to accept like that's what I need is the last yeah. minute. I'm not yeah. a planner and I still get things done. I do yeah. like it all yeah. works out. Yeah, I think uh, that's also a very um, big part of mental health. I think to accept that uh, you are not perfect and uh, uh, this is just part of your process. Um, like uh, when I procrastinate, I, I feel like it, panic I'm like oh I'm not working and then then I try to reassure myself oh in the past I procrastinate always more and I always like last five hours uh get everything done so I think yeah yeah so I think even if we procrastinate it's still part of it's how we get ready for for the work yes I've, and I've heard that procrastination isn't a time management issue it's an emotional response mm -hmm which I haven't dealt with, I guess. But like, I, I was talking to my therapist. Uh, I was going to DC to, this was right when I was, before I was working on my album, I needed to run my hour, 45 minutes to an hour. And I booked a gig in DC to do this. That gave me a long, like enough stage time to do that. So I had a whole train ride or a bus ride to just like go over my notes. And I was telling him, I was like, I didn't, I, I just refreshed apps and tweeted and like looked at Instagram and interacted with, you know, people online. And then I was like, I thought maybe at the hotel room, I'd go over my notes and I didn't. And he's like, you know what, maybe that's just not what you do and you get it done, but you work it out. Like I do all my writing on stage and I've accepted that. I don't write in a notebook. Most of the time I'll tweet. And then from there, I'll say what I tweeted on stage or what I I'll say on stage, what I tweeted. And if I'm having a good time with it, then I expand on it on stage. But mm -hmm. I just decided I'm not that comic that yeah. pulls jokes from midair and puts it into notebooks. Yeah, I think that's a very, very good mindset. Um, like uh, uh, for I think every comics, every person have their own work style. And uh, one source of unhappiness is that uh, there's gurus, there's successful people, they tell you, you have to do this way, have to do that way. Then you start to, you try to fit into their style. And when you are unable to do that, you get mad at yourself. Uh, I, I think it's not healthy. Uh, I think- I yeah. totally agree. And a lot of, uh, we have it here, like the, I call them the older statesmen of comedy they're in that mindset of all, like the way that they perform. My example is Jerry Seinfeld. I, I, I like him. I like the special, like I like his TV show and all that, but I hate how he's like, you, he's all like, you need to know exactly what time he doesn't have a timer on stage for his opener. So you need to know exactly what 15 minutes is. He's all about writing in a notebook and all that. And I'm like, yeah, but he's not very prolific. Um, and that only works for him, for his kind of personality set. 
but the whole time, I think a lot of us comics are like, I guess that's what we have to do. And it made a lot of us miserable. And I think mm -hmm. over time you realize you don't need to do that. I'm also becoming one of those comics. And I, I don't know if this is like weird, but I actually don't think there's anything wrong bringing notes up on stage. I mean, mm -hmm. you shouldn't, you should exactly kind of know exactly where you want to go, but I think it's fine to touch base and go look at where you're at. You it's hard to memorize 45 minutes to an hour. Some of us aren't made that way. And for us to get shamed about it and saying that we're no good as comics, it's like, okay, what, what's our job is ultimately, ultimately to make the crowd laugh. We're yeah. not getting rewarded because we memorize lines. It's yeah. for me, I feel like memorization is so robotic and not fun for me that bringing my notes on stage allows me to be a little bit looser and to go with the flow. Mm -hmm. And I enjoy myself better as a performer that way, which I think ends up being a better show for me. So the idea of like following another comics yeah. process is insanity to me. And I don't know why we live by these constru constructs. You know, like Sarah is so funny. Uh, after uh, your show in Berlin, uh, you, among other comedians, uh, one of the major feedback I heard is that uh, they were like, oh, love this style. Like, uh, uh, check his phone and check his notes. It's so like, uh, <laughs> so freestyle, feel so, so, so close to him. And uh, just feel like they love it. They love the fact that he was checking his phone. He was checking his notes. And yeah. Well, he was uh, like, we were also, it's fun to try out new material. And I think if yeah. you kind of have like a fan base, they get excited for that instead of like watching the process rather watching the finished product sometimes like yeah. that's enjoyable. I, I know I, when I started, like, it was really enjoyable for me. If some of the headliners in the, in Houston, if they stuck around for Monday and did the open mic, like I actually enjoyed watching them do the open mic than I did their polished set. Cause I, for me, I enjoy the process more than the finished product. I think it's more yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I, I think what you said about uh, copy another comic style is insane. I think after we made all those mistakes, realized we don't fit into their shoes, we realize it's insane, but it's not such a, how do you say, obvious statement or discovery. I think a uh, main source of unhappiness is not only about comedy but a main source of unhappiness is that um, you see other people how they do things they claim they are successful and they claim this is the only way to do things and you are unable to do it that way um, so you beat yourself down you think you are not good enough but uh, in order to be good at something it's not about copying other people's approach. It's about finding what works for you, what makes you happy, what makes you enjoy your work. And when yes. you enjoy your work, then you can deliver uh, the best quality, not when you copy other people's style. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I, it is. I feel like once you determine what works best for you, then that's like, you can only go up from there. Mm -hmm. Like I have a, there, my example is like, I have a comic friend, Julio Torres, who um, wrote on SNL, uh, also is on, re, uh, created the series East Spookies on HBO. Um, he always brought a notebook on stage. And I remember him telling me about the booker of Conan being like, I won't, I can't book you. Cause you are like, I don't know why you bring your notebook on stage. 
And I just remember telling him like this, he, cause Julio is so gifted in a different way of thinking that, okay, he didn't get Conan because of that, but like what he got for being who he was and being so different. And he, yeah. So what he brought a notebook on stage, but he was so funny that it didn't matter that people responded to him really, really well. And he just forged his own path. So Mm -hmm. I, he's like a really, to me, like a good example of like, just do you Yeah. like who cares? It's so funny. Like I think about all the comics that give people advice, like telling you what you can and cannot wear on stage, like don't wear shorts. And then the next thing, you know, there's a guy that's wearing shorts on stage, telling it like it is. And everyone's like, oh my God, how refreshing is this? Yeah, and also with uh, with Ali Wang and uh, people used to say like no one will want to watch a woman who's pregnant on stage. Then she started the hype. And now everyone is pregnant. Yeah, everyone's stage. pregnant on stage. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's just like it's insanity. And it's for I know for me personally, it just took me forever to to live or like do stand up the way that I want to do stand up rather than like what Jerry's what worked for Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, that's takes a quite long process to learn. Um, and you like, uh, I think most people in their twenties, they haven't learned the lesson yet to know that yeah. you are you, you need to do what you feel most comfortable. And, uh, I, but even if you know this, um, how do you say, uh, okay, you need to do what you, fits you. But I think even you know this, still very easy to step in the trap. When, you, when the setting of the situation change a little bit and then um, very easily uh, we are falling into the pattern blame as, uh, ourselves. But I mm. think, but once you know the, the, the logic, it's easier to uh, stamp a little bit aside to reasoning with yourself to tell yourself okay maybe what I think uh, wasn't uh, logic and maybe I, I can do it the other way I have a, I have a, a actually I was thinking about something like this uh, very recently um, like uh, uh, so everyone said like for comedians the most important thing is uh, stage time and uh, you mm-hmm. need to do it every night and that's the most important thing but uh, uh, since uh, like two months ago, I don't feel like to do open mics anymore. And I, I just decided to take a break. But uh, uh, the, uh, the voice inside of me and the, the voice from other com- comedians make me fa- feel very uh, judged. And uh, like, uh, h- how can you be a comedian if you don't want to do stage time? But on the other hand, I, I'm like, yeah, but I'm doing my solo like three, four times a month. I, I don't think I have to go to clubs every night if I, I do my solo almost every week. And uh, I'm still very judgmental to myself. Then I was thinking, oh, thinking about Bon Bonham. Like he didn't do stage for five years. And uh, those people would... Uh, Five years ago, they will look at him and say, hey, he's lost. There's no way for him as a comedian. Then five yeah. years later, he come out with a masterpiece. No. Yeah. And, and things are changing in that aspect of like, okay, maybe you don't want to do like the stage time for that or go to the, the saddest open mics five times a night, you know, every day of the week and not have a life for yourself um, that we're finding now with social media, like, if that's not for you, it doesn't, that's, those are, that's like an old way of thinking that you can, you can create like an online 
entertainment for yourself, a voice, and then (laughs) you've got your own fan base. So when you go out to these cities, you've got people there to see you because they want to see you and you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if that's not working for you, but you're working several times a month on your one woman show, when you get, uh, that amount of state, cause you get longer stage time yeah. for that, that you're still doing probably the same amount of hours. Yeah. I, yeah, I think so. I think it's also not about, uh, okay, I want to quit open mics from now on. I think it's about uh, self-accepting knowing, okay, it's fine. If I, I don't feel like it for two months, I can take a break yeah. um, and enjoy this two months break instead of uh, um, not doing mics and also beating myself up and feeling miserable for two months. So. Yeah. I, well, nowadays I'm like, it's quantity over quality. Like how does that benefit you? If you're say you're going out five nights a week and you're just doing the same set over and over again. And mm-hmm. because you're not working on anything or writing anything mm-hmm. or living a life to create content how is that benefiting you when you could probably narrow that down to maybe three days a week and then have a life and now you have experiences to draw on yeah I think uh, having a life is a very important part I think uh, like to be a good comedian like uh, of course you need to be good at with the craft and uh, uh, the joke structure but uh, in, in order to be a great comedian, you have to experience life. You have to experience uh, all those happiness and the tragedy in life and have the emotions and have the time to reflect on it. And that's the best comedy. But if you just forget to live, only do comedy, then you wouldn't have a lot, have a material like that. Yeah, you're just living kind of like the same life day to day. It's the same people that you're seeing over and over again that you're like, you kind of need, to have a perspective and grow with your life and your material grows with you. If you're, if you're personally growing. Um, and I think a lot of times when I talk to other comics that have had success now or whatever, I think general consensus and what we've learned through COVID. And when we were in lockdown is like, we, I think a lot of us realized we weren't living a life that we wanted or that was good for our mental health. And most comics have, they regret putting so much emphasis on stand-up being like, oh, I don't know if I can go on vacation because that's during Montreal callbacks for just for laughs. Like, you know, you're living your life on something that might happen when you should just go and take that vacation and just try it next year. Like not to live your life on comedic timing terms, but like just live your life and then Mm -hmm. see where you can fit the comedy in. And there, because most of us are like, I wish I lived, I did more things rather than dedicating like all of my life to stand up. There are family moments where I'm like, I kept leaving because I had to do stand up. And now I wish I stuck around and did the family moments more than the stand up. But, you know, everything's in hindsight. Yeah. yeah you only yeah. have that clarity looking back on it. Yeah, that's true. Um, speaking of living a life, how was uh, your trip to Berlin? It was good. Um, it was a little weird at first because uh, we thought maybe with just like having American vaccine passports that it could be fine. We were going to the Christmas markets and it's weird because it felt like very similar to the U.S. of like if one guard didn't let us in, we we tried the other entrance and then they were like, that's fine. They go in. So it was like 
you know, it was up to like whatever mood you got somebody in. And then, um, but then we, it was annoying that we kept getting, we would have to figure out another entrance to get in. And then somebody told us about doing, we can get the European Vax passport set up if we go to the pharmacies. But then a lot of the pharmacies didn't want to help us until we found like the third pharmacy by our hotel area. Um, and she was very helpful and set up the paperwork and it just took her 15 minutes, but I think some people just didn't want to do the extra work for us. Um, and then as soon as we got that passport, then everything was like dandy, but I felt like you guys were like us, like some things were open, some things weren't, it was like, it felt quiet for sure. How, how long you stayed in Berlin? We were there for, I think, four days. So it wasn't long, but I think it was enough to like, you know, see the city. And then I think my favorite time was when we did get to see stand up because I like being, I like to see how, I don't like doing the tourist attraction so much. Like, I think I'd rather travel and be in a city and live like the um, citizens live Mm -hmm. I like infrastructure. I like it to know how a city runs, what you do, what your day-to-day -day life is. Yeah. Go to the places that you guys like to go. Not like, the, you know, it's like that here in New York. Everyone's like Times Square and all that. And most locals are like, Ugh. yeah, mm -hmm. we know where all the better, you know, co better coffee shops to go to the better thrift stores. Um, you you so. want to see comedy, which, uh, which comedy club you went? Oh, when we were. In Berlin, I just my favorite moment is when we got to perform in oh. that the I guess the basement of the yeah. pizza place or whatever. <laughs> you make it, it sounds like a really uh, shady place, but actually it's a 130 people venue. Yeah. Well, no, it reminded, it's like it's like how it was like reminded me of like the hot shows here in New York that aren't clubs. It's like the hot underground show to go yeah. to that's what it reminded me of but yeah it was a it was a good it was a nice size crowd more than what you would consider for a regular new york crowd for yeah. sure and uh, for uh, after the show did you hang out with someone did you go out that night uh yeah we hung out with uh was it Shaq? Mm -hmm. that's his name yeah we went to get burgers and then he drove us around i wanted to go see i wanted to go to see the Berlin nightlife, but a lot of them, the clubs were closed. So we drove by it, which mm -hmm. I, I still enjoyed. And then I just, I like driving around and I like looking at the buildings and like, you know, different neighborhoods and all that stuff. Like I find that really fascinating. Did you go in front of, um, what's the name? Berkheim? Yes. The big <laughs> club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And, he t and he told us about it and I'm, I've heard about it and, um, I'd love to go one day mm -hmm. to be a fly on the wall. I, first of all, I just like, um, I like dancing, mm -hmm. uh, but people I, I are love... not really dancing there. <laughs> like, they... I know <laughs> what is it? They're just doing that. Cause yeah. like, I am I, what was it? I think when I was 19, I lived in England for a little bit. And while I was living in England, I went to go visit my friend that lived in, um, near Ramstein. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to kind of like it was a dance club but it wasn't like no they weren't list, like dancing to house music or anything like that they were listening to like bands like ween that were 
just like kind of light punk rock and people were just kind of like dancing yeah. like this. And I was like, oh, I love this. Like dancing to like Guns N' Roses where you, you wouldn't dance to that here in New York. Have you, uh, do you listen to techno music? I like, I'm not like, uh, uh like I, if you started naming bands, I wouldn't know, but I do enjoy They 90- are not bands. You don't know what's techno music. I know. Well, like DJs or yeah, people yeah, that yeah, create yeah. the beat, beats yeah, and stuff like yeah. You know, I grew up on Daft Punk. I know that's not, but I love that stuff. <laughs> Dead Mouse, I liked. Um, you should check out the techno music. Like in Berlin, if you say you don't like techno music, you are discriminated against. And for many years, I didn't feel safe to say it. But yeah, it's, <laughs> but it's basically it's just boom, 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 <laughs> boom, 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 the whole night. Yeah. And the, I, you, I, <laughs> I just like it. I mean, I like it. I grew up on 80s new wave that feels like a, a transition into that. Okay, cool. The next time you are in Berlin, maybe I can take you there. I I think Shahad haven't got into Berkheim yet, but I got in. You because, did? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. Know, I'm like, I don't even know if I could be dressed appropriate. I mean, I was told a little bit of like what it's like there and it sounds so fascinating to me. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think it would be fun, like uh, one one day when they uh, fully open, just not to go inside, but just interview people in front of it. Because you see the most weird dressing people at like 3 a.m. Saturday night, and uh, the line is like two kilometers long. And, yeah. And uh, it's fucking cold in winter, and people are wearing tank, sh- tank, uh, tank top and shorts. It's it's just insane. I I'm like yeah. I don't think I could handle that now. <laughs> Maybe my early twenties, but I definitely would love to just go in, walk around, and then come out and be like, great. Or doesn't it go to like six or seven in the morning or something insane yeah. like that? For you, for you, the best way to go is to go on Sunday morning. So you wake up early, eat breakfast, and go there. That's what I want to do. Yeah, that is. Exactly what I want to do. Eat breakfast, go in, dance a little bit, and then go for the rest of my day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the, have the, the thrilling feeling to, to feel, oh, where I get rejected, where I get in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I think it's a fun experience for, for one or two times, but I'm not a person who would go very regularly. No, I, I don't think I, I could handle it. But there, there's like... um. I'm from Houston and there's a dance club that I like called numbers in Houston. And, uh, they play, they have Friday eighties music and it's not just like top 40 eighties, it's deep cuts and it's new wave. It's Bajas and all that stuff. I love it. And every time I go, that's where I go. And that's my fun favorite thing to do. Cool. So maybe there's a chance you actually like techno. Maybe I think I would, I know what you, there are, there is, Part of it, like I, it, to me, some of it just feels generic. Like anybody could have just created that, but there's some stuff that really does have like a good beat to it. And then I love a drop mm-hmm. and you know, the release, I love it all. Like it's mm-hmm. fun. And I like the feeling. I like a scene. I like if anything you, that feels like a scene to me. If you like uh, this, you know, like a Berlin has a really, really great uh, festival called the, the Fusion. I think, uh, I forgot who, there's a guy went there and talked on Joe Rogan 
podcast. Mm. So it's it's really really insane. And uh, this festival, I don't know, I forgot how many people was there. Like ten thousand or twenty thousand people there. There's no wow. police. There's no security, and uh, there's fire everywhere. And uh, I'm like, how come they think it's safe? <laughs> <laughs> And I was like 3 a.m. sitting in front of like, um, how do you say, uh, like fire pits. And yeah. there's a drunk guy just run here and jump on the fire pits. And that fire pit is 1.5, uh, like, a, how do you say, radiator. And he just yeah, jumped on radiant. the fire pits and, and run away. I'm like, wow, this can go wrong in so many ways. He could uh, like flip over the, the fire pits and everyone get hurt. And... Uh, I was so scared, but then I look around, everyone is having fun. Just normal. Yeah. That's, I think that sounds great. That almost sounds like what our festival, um, I think it's in Nevada, Burning like Man. Burning Man, yes, yes. Yeah, it sounds very similar to that. Yes, cool. Uh, I, I think lots of people go to Fusion. They also uh, really like Burning Man, but uh, Fusion is just cheaper, but uh, like uh, it's very Berlin style. It's cheaper, but you cannot get tickets. Yeah, like, uh, no, that sounds like something I would really enjoy to watch and like kind of like experience. Yeah, we had to bribe people in order to get tickets. So it's, oh, uh, okay. Well, you know the the bummer is is like Joe's really not into that stuff, and that's the thing that I'm like I have to figure out <laughs> <laughs> to get someone else to come with me because that's not. I mean, I think he'd like to see it for five minutes. I don't, but. I don't think he'd like to hang out for four hours, which I'd rather hang out for four hours. Oh, that's a place you need to be there for like a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I forgot to ask what's um, you talk about. You went through the 12 uh, step program. Um, yeah. And uh, how long this program lasts? 12 uh, step program is like, there's so many of them. There's for like Alcoholics Anonymous. There's for narcotics. There's for overeating. There's sex, love, and addiction. And it all runs under the same umbrella of principles. Mm -hmm. um, there's also Al-Anon, which is like family. If you have family members that are alcohol and addiction, because it's odd when you go to these places or like these programs and you can find them all over. They're like, it's like finding your local open mic in any city. Like you can mm -hmm. find them online. Um, it's weird. All these people, you think that you're so different in your, what you're going through it, but everybody kind of like a lot of people have the same feelings. So it's like a weird spiritual program thing. Like, you know, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. The second step is like, uh, accepting that there's a higher power. So like, if you're not, if you're not religious, if you don't believe in a God, you can accept like mother nature or just like in the group, um, what this whole experience of being humans is like beyond you, meaning like you're, you're not in control of your life, mm -hmm. which is, I think a good thing to accept. You can't control it. I mean, there are, that's, there's a prayer of like, accept the things I cannot change and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm -hmm. I think that's very helpful to be like, okay, this is something I can't accept. Um, so what can I do to make it better? Or like, or to accept some things. Um, then there's like, you do, uh, a, they call it like kind of an inventory, which also is a, a sexual inventory of like, 
when somebody's done you wrong, you write what their responsibility of it is, what your responsibility of it, which allows you to see where you play in the thing. Like things aren't your fault, but you also put yourself in situations and you can control that. That's the part you can control. So it's those kind of things that you deal with. And then it's like, after you've gone through your inventory of realizing where you've gone wrong, it's like, then there are certain, there's people in your life during your drug and alcohol years and with whatever addiction that you're going through that you've hurt through your self-centeredness that it's called making an amends. And I've done that. Um, and that's very liberating. Some people won't accept it and that's fine. That's their business. And you can't force people to accept your apology. Um, and then going from there after like doing stuff like that, um, then you live your life like an amends, like you try not to fall back on your old habits. You try to do things that are, you know, what's right for you. Um, And that's the program. And then the rest is like not forcing the message on people. So it's not like a thing that we're looking to like recruit. It's just where, you know, if you're interested, we'll tell you about it. Mm -hmm. So it's not, I know some people think it feels culty, but it's not. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. That's fine. But I know it's just worked for a lot of other people. Um, And then that's an ongoing process. So it's not like something that you do and then you're done Mm -hmm. that that people always talk about like in the program or like an AA um, that, you know, they go through the step work again, over and over again, you can go years and being like, you know what, I feel like I'm kind of running into the same problems again. And it's obviously a me issue. What's my part. And then you go through your inventory again. So it's just kind of like, I think a way to live your life uh, of like on a basic rule of practices and I think it feels to me the most honest way of living your life. That's better. That treats people well and treats yourself well. Yeah. For me, it sounds like, you know, in the book, uh, Johan Harry uh, wrote uh, called Chasing the Scream is a book about addiction. Uh, He said uh, like uh, addiction, actually addiction is not the issue is that uh, your life is a, a glass and it's empty. You don't have anything inside and you use addiction to, to fill it up. But uh, to get rid of addiction is a slowly, slowly to build up your life, to put in things inside of your glass, like a friendship, family, hobbies, passion, and everything. And once your glass is full, then you, the addiction will go away uh, itself. So for what you describe about the 12 step program sounds more like helping you how to live a healthy life and helping you to put uh, put uh, water into your glass. Yeah, pri- like kind of like prioritizing mm-hmm. things that are should be important to you, like family and relationships, and those will fill up that glass. And it's true, I guess the term that we use in a 12-step program, they call it a God-sized hole. Mm-hmm which I always feel that way. Like you're trying, you fill it up and that's why, you know, like phone addiction, eating sex or love or alcohol and drugs. Like you're, instead of doing valuable things, you're putting in the quick fix and it's not doing anything. 
through the 12 steps uh, when you're doing inventory and everything, uh, did you have resistance? Did, uh, at some point, did you try to run away? Uh, I No, because I think at that point, nobody forced me to do anything. It, and so it was a, ch a choice. It was my own choice. And I, so I felt like nothing, there was nothing to run away from. Um, so it was just like a thing that just worked for me. Like I, I, you know, some people, I feel like it just doesn't work for them and mm -hmm. that's fine. And so it is a thing that they probably do just run away from. And the whole, uh, 12 steps, how long it took you to go through it? Um, it's not, it's up to you. Some people mm -hmm. can go through it really fast and then other people like, you know, take time and kind of like sit with it. Mm -hmm. each step and like how important it is to you. And like, I don't know, for, I think for me, it probably took about um, six weeks, six weeks. Wow. Yeah. But that's just like, you know, meeting up once a week with you have like, eventually it's a sponsor, somebody that's been mm -hmm. in the program for a while. That's already worked the steps. They walk you through it. So I would meet up like once a week after a meeting um, with my sponsor. And it's somebody that you can like, share your, you know, really sad moments or things that you actually can't really express to people in your life. And it's better to just tell it to a stranger than rather than somebody that's within your circle that can pass judgment on you. And so it's like a safe space, I think. And so they kind of walk you through the steps. So it was through that, like, um, you know, I had a notebook and I wrote down all the, like what, what my part was, what their part was, what I can do better, what my fear of is. Cause you, you question why are you doing the things you're doing? And it's all fear-based. Yeah. And then you realize that your fear might be irrational. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, um, what's your relationship uh, right now with substance? Um, well, I'm completely sober, so I don't do any drugs or alcohol. I mean, I wow. like coffee, but I don't consider that <laughs> <laughs> anything. Um, I would say, though, my cross addiction, because what ends up happening sometimes is when you quit one addiction, that's why it's a symptom. It's not, yeah. it's the bigger issue is you. Mm -hmm. um, my, I think my cross addiction is phone addiction. I was really hoping it was going to be hard work, mm -hmm. but I went into phone addiction. Um, and so that one's harder. Cause you don't really hit a bottom with that yeah. too much. It's not like I, I'm going to go homeless, but I definitely mm -hmm. can affect my relationships and I'm aware of that. So I do, I do work on it and I, I do need it for work and kind of life shit. I, I really recommend the kitchen safe. What I do right now is that I lock my phone uh, before I sleep. And, uh, so, uh, until noon. So that means when I wake up, I cannot check my phone. So I need to go on my day, like to, to do sports, go out for work, clean the house. And, um, once I'm in that flow, I'm fine with my phone. I can live peacefully with it. But if yeah. I wake up, check my phone, then I, my whole day is fucked. Yes. It's, it's weird. Uh, it's, and this is when I quit smoking. I remember I got that book by Alan Carr called the easy ways of quit smoking. And he's like, it's only when you move, remove yourself from that addiction, 
you're only kind of dealing with the awkward feelings of being gone, separated from that for maybe like maybe five minutes. And it, it does disappear, but we just don't like that feeling. And we're used to like instant satisfaction. So that's why it's hard to break, but like, yeah, you, it is. It's like, as soon as you can get past that five minute hurdle, you realize you're fine and that you've managed to like, you know, do the things that you are supposed to do. And that is now becoming fulfilling to you. Like even doing the dishes that makes me feel better than being on my phone. Yeah. Like I, uh, in the past, I didn't like to do dishes, but now I learned that, uh, uh, I, I really have a phone addiction too. So what I did is that um, um, I, I got a, how do you say, um, broken phone. So that phone is uh, really broken and I don't even have SIM card in it anymore. And I, yeah. I lock my actual phone, but I let the broken phone out. And in the morning, I just listen to audio books like, uh, oh, how to, how to focus. Oh, how to deal with your addiction issue, all those books. And then I, yeah. I, I wash my, um, uh, my dishes. And I like to, I learned if I wash my dishes uh, in the morning and make the kitchen clean, then my whole day feels good. Yeah, way better. I, that's why I stopped going to the gym because I kept looking at my phone while I was at the gym that now I do yoga or I run because those are two activities that I, I'm away from my phone for about an hour. Me too. I cannot, I cannot do gym at all because then I play with my phone, but I do like a, uh, this kind of CrossFit where the trainer shout out to you or swim or like yes. a cycling class where I cannot touch the phone. Yes. That, I find that cause that ends up being bad, like good for me mentally. And then also physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. Sarah, I hope you are uh, after our call, you go on your Amazon, get the kitchen safe and yes. off your phone. <laughs> I think I'm going to get, I will look into the kitchen safe because that sounds perfect for me. Yeah. And the, the Amazon employee, <laughs> because yeah. I, heard your, I heard you're like a, a stand-up special. Uh, <laughs> you oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Amazon employee will put a knife and the rope in, in the kitchen safe. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, that's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're cool. my therapists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, now I'm reaching to the last final question. And yes. the most important question in the whole session. So uh, if you can recommend uh, one or two or three stand-up special, what's your recommendation? What's your favorite? What's the, those ones you keep watching and watching? Um, I, there's so many, I don't know. Like, uh, I like anything, a lot of stuff by Louis CK, but that, the one I wouldn't recommend the most is like his comedy store one. I don't think that's his best one but all the others are pretty good. Um, he's are my favorite. Uh, let's see. Uh, I really like Adrian Appalucci. She has a uh, baby skeletons. Mm-hmm. She's really funny. Um, she's that's dark humor. So if you're sensitive oh. about subject matter, be careful. Is, uh, is she, uh, we, we glass, uh, and is, she yeah, she on- was, she, we had a podcast together. Uh, 
but we're still friends. Uh, we just ended the podcast. It was is, called Badge, but she was my podcast partner for a while. Is she on Degenerates? Yes, Netflix. Oh, I know her. Yeah, she's amazing. She's so great. I I remember the joke about the uh, about her like a uh, 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 sexual uh, offenders, and yes. she she uh, made an analogy with murders, and yes. it was hilarious. It was so funny. She's amazing. She's great. She, and she's one of like the funniest people I know. Um, Joe List, I hate myself. I have to put that one in there. I, I knew um, you are going to say Joe List. That's why I didn't say one Netflix, the one comedy special, because otherwise you'll say Joe List. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the thing it's like weird because I don't know like comedy special names, but I do know the comic. So Naper Gotzi is one that I really like. Um, God, who else? Patrice O'Neill, I really, he's really funny. Elephant in the Room, I think that's oh. the name of his special from years and years ago. Uh, who do I like? Rory Scovel, mm -hmm. watch him on YouTube. He's got a really great YouTube channel, but I love, love all of his bits. And also he's an amazing comic to see live because mm -hmm. I think he's probably one of the few comics. If you went to see him one night and then went to go see him the next night, you're going to get a totally different show. Wow. Insane memory then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he's more improvisational. Um, he's, he goes with the flow and he's really good off the cuff. Mm -hmm. um, so I highly, he's one that I highly recommend. Cool. I checked them out. Thank you so much for the recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for doing the uh, podcast and thank you for being open uh, to talk about uh, your uh, mental journey, not only with me, but also on stage. I think this is uh, uh, very important um, uh, to break the stigma. And I think it uh, makes lots of positive change uh, to our society. And uh, thank you a lot. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I'm worried bad at ending things. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, dear audience, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, I hope you stay safe, stay alive. Bye-bye. Yeah, stay alive. Bye. Bye. <laughs> hey, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. Uh, there's a few announcements I'd like to make. So on 27th of February, it's a Sunday, we have our anxiety comedy special at a cosmic uh, comedy club in berlin meter uh, if you haven't got a ticket please do it will be awesome we have the most anxious comedians in berlin uh, doing their mental health material for you and uh, besides that now i have my patreon page uh, for as little as uh, three euro fifty uh, a month you can support my project on mental health thank you so much See you another episode. Ciao, ciao.